0: Well, as human beings, we are fascinated by nature with kingdoms. In fact, if you were to look up the definition of a fairy tale, uh, fairy tales always have certain ingredients that classify them as that genre. And to be a fairy tale, you have to have some form of evil, something that is disrupting uh, things as they ought to be. You have to have some type of royalty and kingdom and then you have to have some type of a hero. And you think about a fairy tale, fairy tales transcend generations. They transcend time. Uh, many fairy tales are handed down through the ages. They come from other continents, and yet they always awaken the heart and imagination of children. And if we're honest, adults alike. See, what compels us to be so interested in fairy tales? Why is it that we're so interested in kingdoms and kingdoms that are being threatened and the need for a kingdom to be redeemed? I would say that it is very deeply intrinsically imprinted upon our nature because we're created in the image of God and because God has established the universe in the very uh, understanding as a kingdom that you can't avoid, but just have an interest in this Concept. In fact, we establish kingdoms on earth because God is the king who delegates his authority to humanity. And we all long for living in a reality where there is a good king that has good rules, and everyone follows those rules, and the kingdom is a glorious place to live. Evil is vanquished, and everyone, of course, lives happily ever after. My friends, the kingdom is one of the great themes in scripture. Kingdom is all over scripture. In fact, from a statistical point of view, all but three books in the Old Testament refer to the kingdom. So that's 36 out of 39 books in the Old Testament speak of the kingdom. In the New Testament, it's uh, all but six books. And so within scripture, 66 books in the canon, 57 of them speak of the theme of the kingdom. Michael Vlock writes, so kingdom language is found at the beginning, that's in Genesis, and at the end in Revelation. The story begins with God as king and man's right to rule under him, and it continues with God on the throne and man reigning under him over a new earth. He continues and says, the Bible's entire storyline shows how the kingdom created goes to the kingdom fallen, which then leads to the kingdom restored. This storyline is centered and anchored in Jesus, the Messiah. And so I want to set forth to you from the scriptures this morning, the reality of Jesus, our coming King. Last week, we saw that the coming kingdom is a kingdom that does not originate from this world. Jesus stood before Pilate and he told him, I have a kingdom that is not from this world. It doesn't originate from this world. It was confounding to Pilate. The idea was that this is a kingdom that is not related to the rise and fall of America. It's not brought about through moral or immoral leaders. It is not thwarted or hastened by wars or conquest. It's not a kingdom that's guaranteed by a constitution or a peace treaty. You can kill and imprison subjects of this kingdom. It won't slow it down because this is a kingdom that is not from this world. And so my ambition in our minutes together this morning is to fill your mind with truth about this coming kingdom. And that as you hear that truth, you are going to be filled, I trust, with joy and with expectation and with comfort and with hope. You might leave here thinking, I can't wait to see this glorious kingdom. In fact, the scriptures say that we're to pray for the kingdom to come, we're to anxiously expect the kingdom, we're to be awaiting the revelation of this kingdom, we're to live as citizens of this kingdom, and we are to invite others who are not a part of the kingdom to join us through repentance and faith in the gospel to become part of this kingdom. Very often as believers, we get a little bit short-sighted, and we begin to focus on this temporal life. We lack the faith to see the coming kingdom, and so this begins to show up in in a misplaced hope of wanting the kingdom here and now on the earth. Could be that you want to be the king of your own castle, and you're just frustrated because uh, things aren't the way you want them in your home or in your work life. Could be that you've got the desire to see the kingdom come about through the political system or peace it could be that you want relational peace around you. Or perhaps you're just discontent. You struggle with discontentment. You're always thinking, as soon as I can get to X, Y, Z stage, as soon as I can accomplish this or purchase this or move here or do that, then I will be able to enjoy this kingdom that I'm longing for. I would be content. Maybe on the other side, you're just Fearful. So you read the news, you see lies abounding, you see the wicked prospering it seems, you see wicked people elevated to high positions of power and authority, and you begin to get fearful because that threatens your peaceful way of life or the way that you would like to see things happen. Whether you are pining for the good life here and now or you want less of the bad, this is just part of what is within the human heart. It's what we long for, it's what we want. We want to see things restored and working as they ought. We want to see justice and righteousness reigning. And so the scriptures tell you not to quench that desire, but rather to desire it to come in the way that God has said it will come, in his terms, in his timing. You remember Jesus taught his very disciples to pray like this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I remember, I don't know what, how old I was, but I began thinking, man, I pray that. I pray it a lot. I didn't grow up Catholic, so we didn't pray it every week, but we prayed it a lot. And I don't actually know what I'm praying for. When I pray that kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, am I talking about like make me more obedient? Am I talking about grow the church right now? Am I saying, let's see evangelism spread all around us? Am I telling him to come back and and start up heaven. He's saying, have it be on earth as it is in heaven. I'm, I'm praying for the kingdom to come, and I know that I'm supposed to desire that, but for all the hundreds of times I prayed that, what am I actually praying for? Do you know what you're praying for when you say, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If you're anything like me, it gets a bit fuzzy. I know one day every knee will bow every tongue will confess. We just sang about it and all creatures of our God and King. He will come to rule and reign. So we know, we know something is happening, but sometimes it just gets a bit fuzzy. I want to help you take what is probably fuzzy in your mind regarding the kingdom. And I want to razor sharpen the clarity of that focus so that you know when you pray, Lord, Let your kingdom come. You know exactly what it is that you're praying for. I want to show you this morning the development of the kingdom of God in Scripture. And in order to do that, we need to define a little bit what what a kingdom actually is. And so there's a definition there on the back of your worship guide in the sermon notes. Uh, We have a definition of the kingdom. This is taken from Michael Vlock in his book, He Will Reign Forever, A Biblical Theology of the Kingdom of God. And he writes, the concept of kingdom includes at least three essential elements. So, three ingredients to have a kingdom. Number one, you need a king. That's a ruler. A kingdom involves a ruler with rightful and adequate authority and power. Two, the king needs a kingdom. This is the realm. So, a kingdom involves a realm of subjects to be ruled. And then finally, a kingdom means a rulership. So, this means there actually has to be the exercise of that authority in the domain. All three elements are needed for a kingdom, including active ruling. J. Alvin McLean says there can be no kingdom in the truest sense without a ruler, a realm, and a reigning function. Last year, we met someone and they were telling us, well, actually, we have a a relative who's a king. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a a load of something. You know, you're, you're not... You're not telling the truth. No, no, really, I have this relative. Uh, he's a king in Nigeria. And so I thought, man, I've got to go fact check this. And so I get onto Google and start trying to research and find out if, in fact, I, uh, I actually know someone who's related to a king. And, and lo and behold, I find out that in Nigeria, uh, things work a little differently there. And so in Nigeria, they actually don't know how many kings there are, but it's in the thousands. And every tribe has a leader who is a king. Now, the issue is the government has changed over the years, and so they began to take away all of the power and authority of the kings, but they still uh, dress in the pomp of being kings. So, they have great regalia, uh, bright colors, uh, you know, gold socks, and just different things that would make them look like kings, and yet they don't have any real authority in the country. One citizen of Nigeria wrote, these kings have no authority, no armies, fight no wars, they bear no responsibility for the development or prosperity of the, their domain. And yet we indulge in this fantasy of them being the kings who did all these and more in the days of yore. What's the point? Well, he's saying, okay, you can, you can call yourself a king. You can have the title. You can have the role. You can even have this domain that you supposedly exercise rule over. But if, if no one's actually obeying you, if you don't have the authority to actually reign, then you're not a king. You're a king in name only. And so this seems straightforward. And yet, when we get to the concept of the kingdom of God in Scripture, we need, to, we need to understand what we're talking about, about the rulership of Jesus Christ. could say it this way, where is Jesus right now and what is he doing and how does that relate to the kingdom? We kind of know he's in charge. We certainly wouldn't want to say, well, no, he's, he doesn't have any power or any control right now. But then at the same time, are, are we able to say that, All of his will is being exercised upon the earth in accordance with his character. Well, it seems like we're lacking some in the full manifestation of that. And this is the dilemma. And so I want you to understand how the Bible talks about the kingdom. The first way the Bible talks about the kingdom is the universal kingdom. And this is God's eternal rule over all creation. Alvin McLean continues, and he says, it is not for men to choose whether or not they will be under the universal kingdom. Whether they like it or not, they are already under it. So, here's how it works. You get born into the world, and guess whose kingdom you're in? You're in God's kingdom. Doesn't matter whether you want to be. This is my Father's world. Whether you recognize it, whether you submit to it, whether you think you like it, It's an inescapable reality. Every activity under the sun is under the realm of this sovereign. Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Boy, how do you like that? This entire spinning globe and everything in it is just like where you'd put your feet up at the end of the day. The Lord says that the earth is like his footstool as he sits on the throne in the heavens, Psalm twenty four one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm one fifteen three, our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. And so, the universal kingdom of God is God's sovereign reign over all that He has created. And if you're a believer, this is a source of great comfort and great joy. In fact, we can be reconciled to this King. We can live with Him eternally. This is a kingdom that uh, no one can say, uh, quitsies, I don't want to be a part of it. Or uh, I never signed up for it, I want an exemption. You belong to this kingdom and you will give an account to this king. So every creature that's ever been born belongs to the universal kingdom of God. His rules, his judgment calls, his decisions, his will. And you're simply a part of it because he made you. This is the universal reign of God. In fact, Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus has established all things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So, right now in this world, Satan, his demons, Every evil governor, every evil president, every evil judge or commissioner, every king, every legislator, every prison guard, every police chief, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, they're all created through him and for him, and he holds all of them together. This is what we mean when we talk about the universal kingdom, the universal reign of God. No evil deed will go unnoticed or unpunished. Every wrong is accounted for, and it will either be paid for by those who committed the sin or it will be paid for by Jesus Christ for those who put their trust in him. My friends, the universal reign of God is what keeps us as believers from panicking. Keeps us from freaking out. It's to stabilize us and to anchor us. That there is nothing that happens outside of the purview of this king. And yet, the universal kingdom is not the only way that God has chosen to rule in this world. Seeing God's wisdom and His design and His marvelous plan, God wanted to display His glory by delegating His authority to mankind on earth. He wanted to actually create people in His image who would exercise dominion Theologians refer to this as the mediatorial kingdom. The idea that there's a a mediator, someone who's acting in behalf of the king. I want to show you this development. I want to give you an appreciation for what God has done and what he's going to do. And so we're going to do uh, biblical theology light this morning. That means that we don't have time to dive into all of these passages at the depth that we want to. But I want to trace this concept of the kingdom for you through scripture so you can get a little idea of how it's portrayed The development of the kingdom of God in Scripture, the hope of King Jesus coming, begins first with the preparation for King Jesus. The preparation for King Jesus. Turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 1, and I want to show you the preparation that began for this coming King. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, we're going to begin at the very beginning, once upon a time when God created the heavens and the earth. I want to see you the design here. I want to show you the kingdom framework on the very first page of your Bible. Genesis 1.26, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is the eternally preexistent God. This is the sovereign king. He has no beginning. He has no starting point. He has no need to create man. He was not lonely. He didn't need us. He was self-satisfied in his existence. And yet in his Trinitarian fellowship, in that satisfaction, out of his own good pleasure, God said, let us, there's the three persons of the Godhead at creation, let us now make man in our own image so that our character and our glory can be magnified. And displayed in creation. And so, we're going to create man. It's in our mind, in our imagination to do that. And the very first responsibility given to mankind, the very first form and structure to creation in the second part of verse 26 is what? And let them have dominion. And let them have dominion. That almost sounds like a kingdom. Dominion is, in fact, the word used of a ruling monarch in the Psalms. It means to govern. It is the work of a king. It is the role of a king. And God didn't say, let's make man in our own image so that man can have playdates all the time. Or so that man can uh, just simply be passive on the earth. Or simply to be our royal subjects and function like robots Rather, God said, let's make man to rule. Let's make man to rule, to govern, to exercise dominion, to take charge. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and Subdue it. His instruction is to go and conquer the earth, go and fill the globe. Literally, bring it under to uh, bring it under submission. And subdue is a is a raw word here. It's it's not a very nice word. In fact, in person to person usage in the Old Testament, it was uh, where someone would violate someone else uh, to bring them under their control and force them into submission. The idea here is not, obviously, to go destroy the earth as you bring it into submission. This isn't a license to abuse the earth, but it is a very clear mandate. That man is given the responsibility to go and conquer the creation and to bring it under control. To rule over it. He repeats it again, even. To exercise dominion. So, here we have the garden. We have Adam, the first man, and he is told... Go exercise dominion, rule and govern, and go subdue the earth. Go conquer the earth. See, that sounds like a wonderful plan. God is sharing his glory. As the divine ruler who has a universal kingdom, he's saying, I want to share my glory with man. And how I'm going to do that is, I'm going to create him in my image to go and do likewise. To go and rule over the domain that I've given him. Here's the king of kings and the lord of lords giving authority to human beings created his image. In fact, the psalmist would say in Psalm 115 verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he is given to the children of man. So we have two different domains here. We have God's domain in the heaven above where he rules, and then we have the earthly domain where he's given this rulership to humanity. Side note, whatever station of life you're in, then you have dominion and you are conquering for God's glory. Why is it that people find great satisfaction in making things beautiful or efficient or working? It's because you are created by God to go exercise dominion over creation. And God is encouraged about this. He looks at it and he says there in verse 31, it is very good. I had a good plan. I had a good design. Everything that I've done here is excellent. And then we get to chapter 3, and Eve is deceived, and she believes the serpent, and she gives the fruit to her husband, and he eats too. And all of a sudden, we find that the kingdom's not going to come to fruition through Adam. His original design is not going well. In fact, Adam was a failed He was supposed to be God's vice regent. He was supposed to carry out the plan. He was supposed to bring the earth into submission, and he failed to do that. In fact, this originally good kingdom is so bad that by Genesis 6, God says, I'm going to start over from scratch. One family, a few of the animals, and everything else gets destroyed. Noah comes out of the ark. What does God say to him in chapter 9? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, let's have a do-over. We're going to go back to Genesis 1. We're going to try this again. We're going to see if you can go and exercise dominion in the way that you're called to do it. If you can bring about the kingdom according to the way that I have designed. What happens? Well, by chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, you have humanity saying, rather than scattering to fill the earth and subdue it, we're going to coalesce together so that we can make a great name for ourselves. What's God say? I'm going to confuse your language and I'm going to send you to scatter because I've said from day one, the plan is dominion over the earth. You guys keep rebelling against it. I'm going to force you to do that. And so the preparation for King Jesus is that from the very beginning of creation, what we see is, is Adam was unable to accomplish this role. Adam failed. And it wasn't just Adam, but then Noah as a representative of the human race does the very same thing. He fails. And so, as we look at the hope of King Jesus revealed in history, we see that God doesn't give up on his plan. Rather, he gives the promise of King Jesus. This is the second hope of King Jesus revealed in history. It is the promise. And this promise, as you know, came as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. To Satan, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What God is saying right there at that moment is there's going to be two rival kingdoms now on earth the dominion of Satan and the line for my promised son. The line for my promised son. You start tracing out what happened in human history, and all of a sudden you see wow, this enmity just went and went and went and went. From the famine that almost wiped out Israel in Genesis that Joseph delivered his family from. What was that? Well, that was Satan trying to wipe out the Messianic line. Trying to snuff out the bloodline that Christ would come from. What about when Pharaoh orders all the Hebrew boys to be murdered by genocide in Egypt? What do you think is empowering that? Well, that's Satan's enmity toward the seed of the woman. Trying to destroy Israel All of the boys so that the Messianic line will be stopped. Saul later attempting to kill David before David had a chance to have children and offspring. Haman trying to kill all of the Jews in Persia, yet God preserved them through Esther. Herod trying to kill all of the baby boys in Bethlehem right after Christ was born. Over and over and over we see Satan opposing the line of this seed. We see these rival kingdoms and all this is because God has promised that one day he is going to provide a ruler, an anointed one, a Messiah who will actually exercise dominion over creation in the way that Adam failed to do. That promise that was given in Genesis 3.15 is clarified in Genesis chapter 12. If you turn over to Genesis chapter 12, as you know well, the Abrahamic covenant, God begins to build on what he has said in Genesis chapter 3 and give it more clarity and give it more definition. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. My friends, this is fulfilling what God had given man to do in Genesis chapter 1 and the promise of uh, the first hope of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and it's beginning to clarify things a bit. I mean, the original plan was for Adam to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the earth. And now he's telling Abram, listen, I'm going to make your descendants great. I'm going to fulfill exactly what I commanded Adam to do through you and through your line. You're going to get a whole nation, in fact. You're going to get a people group that is blessed of the Lord. And from that people group is going to come an offspring. And in that offspring, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through this seed. This is a promised one who will do what I gave Adam to do in Genesis 1. And we begin to see the idea then that there is this one nation that will be a microcosm of the work that God is going to do worldwide. This was for their comfort and their hope and their consolation that God is making a promise to Abraham that begins to make what he told Eve in the garden a little bit more clear. Then by the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 49, if you turn there, we move from the narrowing from Eve's line to the person of Abraham. And then when we get to Genesis 49, we begin to see this narrowing even more. Abraham had the son of promise, which was Isaac. Isaac's younger son, Jacob, was blessed by the Lord from which the Messiah would come. And now in Genesis 49, verse 8, we see Jacob's son, Judah, receive a promise. Genesis 49, verse 8 And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So now God is not giving up. He's saying that I'm going to have a mediator. I'm going to have a man who rules. Who rules the way that Adam was supposed to and never did. And here we see in this prayer of blessing, as Jacob is blessing his sons, that it's going to come through the line of Judah. Judah. In fact, when you read here about a lion, you know, we think of the lion as the king of the jungle. That originated long before us. The lion's associated with royalty, with majesty. And so, he's saying right here, Judah, actually, all of your brothers are going to praise you. People are going to be obedient to you. There's going to be a lion that comes from your line. There will be a ruler from Judah's loins. And all of a sudden, your mind begins to fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, the first king of Israel was Saul, who was a Benjamite. And then God takes the kingdom away, and he gives it to David. And when David is anointed, the men of what tribe came? The men of Judah came. And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And so we see that God is, is giving now a mediator. He's giving a king This King David who would be his anointed, the one who was promised now in the garden and then promised to Abraham. The vision begins to get clear when Jacob blesses his sons in Genesis 49. And now look at the promise that God gives to David. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and we begin to see this promise get more definition and more clarity. 2 Samuel chapter 7. David has this idea that he's going to go and build a temple for the Lord. And Nathan says, man, that sounds like a really good idea. Then the Lord comes to Nathan and says, you know what? Actually, you're not going to be the one to do that. Spoke a little bit too soon. A little bit of uh, presumption on your part. And so look at what promise the Lord gives to David from the line of Judah. He says in verse 9 of chapter 7, David, I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. That sounds like a kingdom. He says, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, so there's going to be peace Verse 11, from that time I appointed judges over my people Israel. So there's going to be uh, righteous rulings that take place. Judges that do my will. Judges that are in my heart that judge righteously. goes on and says, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And I will give you rest from your enemies. So total peace, verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, David, that's a, a dynasty, a, a lineage. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down as your fathers, so after you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And so this is talking now about Solomon. And yet as we'll read, we'll see that Solomon can't possibly do all of the things that are promised here. He says in verse 12, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. So that's Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, I can't be Solomon because Solomon is going to die just like David died and Jesse died and everyone before him. It says, verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, this is Solomon, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. And you begin to see the weaving of this thread all the way back from the idea of Abraham having descendants forever coming through to David now as the monarch, given this covenant, given this promise referred to throughout Scripture that there will be one who comes who sits on the throne of David and who rules not for 20 years or 40 years or 50 years, but he's going to rule forever. And when he comes, he's going to bring a restoration. There's going to be peace with this kingdom. There's going to be prosperity with this kingdom. There is going to be joy with this kingdom. And so this leads us from the promise of King Jesus to the preview of King Jesus. We're going to skip over about couple hundred passages on the kingdom through all of the prophets. And we make our way to Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter one. And it begins with this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See the son of David, we read and we think, oh yeah, sure. He was the son of David. The son of David has an instant royal ring to it. It wasn't just the way that Matthew decided to frame up his gospel. Turn over to Luke chapter 1. And see how the angel began to speak to Mary about this child that was in her womb. Gabriel comes to Mary and says in Luke chapter 1 verse 31. Behold Mary. Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That's Jesus the Savior. We think, when we think of Jesus, Jesus is a Savior, and that is true. But he goes on. He doesn't leave it as a Savior. In verse 32, he will be great. Okay, that reminds us of what David was just told. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You begin to understand that it is appropriate that we think of Jesus as our Savior, but Jesus is revealed as much more than that in Scripture. He is a king with a kingdom, with a right to rule. And you begin to think about what did Simeon say when he saw Jesus? And what did Anna say when she saw Jesus? And what did Zechariah prophesy when he saw Jesus? And you begin to see there was this thread of a messianic hope that the Lord would send an anointed, that he would send a ruler, that he would send a king to bring a kingdom. And so when Jesus came on the earth, he came and he brought with himself a preview of the kingdom some people say, well, the kingdom kind of came. He brought the kingdom in some way, in some sense, when he came onto the earth. We'd, we'd say that when he came and brought the kingdom, what he brought was uh, a sample or a foretaste. It'd be like if you uh, went to Costco after church today, and they were doing samples again, and you had a sample with, you know, one chip and one salsa, and you ate it, and you told your family, I got chips and salsa today at Costco. They're expecting, right, the five-pound bag that's taped to another one, so it's 10 pounds of chips and a couple containers of salsa. What you had was just a little taste. You didn't actually get chips and salsa. You got a chip with a little bit of salsa on it. When Jesus came on the earth, he came and he gave a little preview. He gave a little taste of the coming kingdom, and yet it was not the kingdom in its fullness. It was just to whet our appetites. Matthew 4 says that Jesus went through Galilee. He was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom, While he was doing that, listen and think of how amazing this would be. He was healing every disease, Matthew says, and every affliction among the people. And his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all of the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed how many of them? All of them that they brought to him. You talk about reversing the curse Mark chapter 1 says that they would bring the sick, they would bring the oppressed by demons, that the whole city gathered to Him there in Capernaum, and He healed everyone who was brought to Him. And suddenly you think of these miracles are not merely the exercise of human compassion. Certainly Jesus loved people and He had compassion on them. But you understand Jesus healing the sick was not primarily, first and foremost, an expression of human compassion. It was an expression of what he was going to do in his kingdom. This is what Isaiah prophesied of in Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. See, what happened, everybody knew in Israel what they were seeing. Because in Matthew chapter 12, verse 23, as they see the blind getting sight and the deaf hearing, people start to say to themselves, can this be the son of David? This certainly looks and smells and sounds like the kingdom that we're expecting. We're starting to see the the ravaging effects of sin undone among us. Why do I say it was a preview, a taste? Draws every blind person that Jesus gave sight to experienced their eyes degenerating as they neared death. Every deaf person who he granted the ability to hear again eventually had their hearing weaken. Every paralytic who was able to suddenly move their body and walk freely eventually froze in death and was unable to move their limbs. miracles didn't last. They weren't done forever. They were a taste. They were a preview. See, the kingdom was on the minds of everyone at this time. Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the promised son of David. He was bringing the kingdom. And the kingdom is is all over the New Testament. I want to show you one more passage here in the Gospels alone. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. And and I want you to see this as a, a kingdom vision. Matthew 17 gives us a taste, a little preview, a little sample of what's to come. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 1 says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led him up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it, it is good that we are here. And if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And we always think, man, Peter just blew it. This guy is ready to, to set up camp and totally misses the point. I want you to understand this passage in a maybe a different way if that's the way that you think about it. So what's happening is that Jesus is being transfigured to be revealed for who he really is. The king in his glory, the king in his splendor, the king in his power. And when he says, time to set up three tents, what he's saying is, the kingdom is here. So we're going to set up the booths right now for you to reign in all of your glory. You say, well, how do you know that that was what was on his mind? Well, we have the cheat code. So 2 Peter, Peter actually writes about this experience for us. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. We saw him. What were we eyewitnesses to? He says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Of his majesty. We saw him, and that is what the king is going to look like when he comes. That's what it's going to look like when the, the veil is, is really pulled back and we see him for who he really is. It's going to be shining. He's going to be glorious. He's going to be revealed in power. said, we saw him. He received honor and glory from God the Father. And it was majestic glory that said this beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. See, Peter is actually well-educated. Peter knows exactly what he's seen. And Peter is ready for the kingdom at that moment to be revealed. Say, what happened? We see his glory. Where is he now? Is Jesus on the throne right now reigning in glory? Is he in that splendor? This is perplexed theologians, it's perplexed me for a long time, but the scriptures are actually very clear and very consistent with what they describe regarding the ministry of Jesus right now. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's where Jesus is. He's at the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter 233 says that he was exalted to the right hand of God, the Father. So Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? Well, Psalm 10 says, until. You stay at the right hand of the Father until I make your enemies your footstool. You say, well, how does that work? Well, David is actually a perfect typology in the Old Testament as an example of where Jesus is right now and what he's doing. See, if you think about David's progression as king, as you read the narrative, David was anointed by Samuel, and then the next minute he was king. No. No. He was anointed. He was was God's anointed ruler. He was given that right and authority, and yet there was a time period where he was waiting to actually ascend to the throne. He's anointed king over Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2, but there was a long war between his house and the house of Saul before he was anointed the king over all of Israel. It came in progression, it came in stages, it came in phases. And so right now where Jesus is, is He is at the right hand of the Father with all authority, with all power, with all glory, and yet He's not yet revealed on the throne in His kingdom. I want to show you this, and this is our final point as we see the hope of King Jesus revealed in history. This is the presentation of King Jesus. Look over at Matthew chapter 25, and I want to demonstrate this for you from the text. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus is telling his disciples what to be thinking about the future. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. So he's in fact David's true son. He is the anointed one and the Messiah. He's come and brought a preview of the kingdom, a foretaste of the kingdom. When he was raised in power after he had died, he was now given all of the authority, he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And yet, the revelation of me ascending to the throne is something that is yet to come. See, what he's waiting for is the millennial kingdom. Jesus will rule the nations in the millennial kingdom on earth, and he will punish the nations who do not act as they should to see this millennial kingdom, turn with me to Roman or Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. John writes in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. You say, well, who's that? Well, he says, who is the devil and Satan? And he bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, after that, he must be released for a little while. Now, clearly what is being described here is something that is not our current present age. Because in our current present age, Satan is never described as bound. In fact, first Peter 5, 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You say, well, maybe he's not deceiving the nations. No, first John 5, 9 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one say, well, maybe he's not actually deceiving. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, Jesus hasn't bound Satan in this way yet. Satan's still actively deceiving the nations. He's still actively promoting contrary gospels. He's not bound right now, and And in fact, Jesus is not yet reigning in the way that we see described here. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their heads. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. See, now we're getting into the language of Jesus, seated on a throne, reigning. Now, how do we know that this is a kingdom that is reigning? Well, this lines up perfectly with what was foretold in the Old Testament. If you read the Prophets, Isaiah 65 is a great chapter. What you find there is the promises of this kingdom where the curse is being undone. A second Adam has come. A king greater than David has come that has begun to reverse the curse. In fact, in Isaiah 65, what we find is is the animal kingdom is now getting along. Okay, last time I went to the Oregon Zoo, the billy goats are on one side and the tigers are on the other side and there's a fence between them. We wouldn't have as many animals to enjoy at the zoo if we didn't have all those fences, right? The animal kingdom is not yet getting along. The wolf and the lamb are not grazing together. Isaiah 65 promises no more crying or weeping. You haven't been to my house this week, but there is still crying and weeping in this world. Isaiah 65 can't be talking about heaven because it describes that there will be infants and yet not infant mortality. You know, some friends that just this past month lost an infant in the first week of its life. That's not going to happen in this kingdom And it can't be talking about heaven because there's not going to be babies being born in heaven. Isaiah 65 talks about older people not dying early. People living long and enjoying what they've worked for. If you know anyone who's lost a business, then that doesn't fit with what we read about in Isaiah 65 because the work that you do is going to be productive and it's always going to produce and it's going to produce well. Isaiah 65 speaks of those who will plant vineyards and eat the fruit of their work. And all violence being removed from the land. And nations and kings from around the world coming and bowing before the King who is Christ. My friends, if we try to spiritualize the promises of Isaiah 65, we do a disservice to God and His Word. We need to understand these promises are not just fulfilled spiritually. They are fulfilled physically in actual realities, the actual removal of violence the actual removal of enmity, the actual bringing about of peace. And so the kingdom is not something that we're currently living in right now as revealed in Scripture in this way. It is a kingdom that we are awaiting. You Imagine this. This is going to be a world where there's no healthcare industry anymore. People just aren't getting sick. for all of you nurses. You'll need to find a new job in the kingdom. Everything's going to work the way it's supposed to. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being in the garage or the kitchen and everything works the way it's supposed to. Peace and harmony in families and neighborhoods. The news is going to be filled with feel-good stories. This is a world where God's people are going to be vindicated and God himself is going to be vindicated. This is the beginning of the happily ever after ending that everyone wants. And this kingdom is the beginning of the age to come so this is not the ultimate eternal state this is the beginning of those things this is because if jesus is foretold is reigning and ruling over the nations then there is actually a moment in time where he must reign and rule over the nations that's why we refer to this as the intermediate kingdom i want to show you one more passage that you can look at this and see that this is a kingdom that is going to be temporary in nature Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you'll see this very concept Paul is talking about in this text. Paul talks about Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. He begins to talk about last things, and in verse 24, he says, then comes the end when he, that's Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, verse 15, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. My friends, what we mean when we pray let your kingdom come, is the expression for Jesus to come back in body and establish his kingdom reign and rule on this earth and begin to reverse the curse and fulfill exactly what Adam was supposed to do and failed. And as he reigns in this kingdom, he will subdue the nations and at the end of that, he will vanquish his enemies and then he will hand over the kingdom to his father, and so begins the eternal state. And friends, this is a marvelous plan, and it is the kingdom that we are to long for. Every desire that you have to see things right in the world is to be banked right here that one day they will. I want to read a summary of what we have just covered. God created Adam as a son and king, tasked to rule over God's very good creation on his behalf. But with the fall, Adam and mankind failed the kingdom mandate. Man's right and responsibility in regard to this world was not forfeited. But in his sinful condition, all he could do was fail. God, though, launched a promised plan by which a coming seed of the woman would be victorious in defeating Satan and rescuing and restoring all the creation. Several strategic representatives of God would come, including Noah, Abraham, and David. But the fulfillment of the seed promise culminated with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. He is the one tasked by the Father to fix this fallen world by ruling over it successfully. Fulfilling the kingdom mandate of Genesis 1:26 26 26-28 and bringing the creation into conformity with the perfect will of His Father. Jesus is the one who will succeed from and over the realm where the first Adam failed. Yet Jesus' kingdom will cover two main phases. With his first coming, Jesus laid the basis for restoring all things by dying on the cross in fulfillment of the ministry of his suffering servant. The second coming will bring complete restoration under the king. When Jesus successfully reigns over the earth, he will then hand his kingdom over to the Father so God may be all and in all. This is, is God's kingdom program. The kingdom of God is the great and grand theme of Scripture. The believer in Jesus can know the kingdom is not a spiritual escape to a cloud in the sky, but a transformed planet Earth where the nations serve our great God and King Jesus. Michael Vlock concludes, having a proper view of the kingdom gives the believer a clear understanding of God's purposes for this planet and a real hope for a wonderful future. Pray then this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. And come Lord Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, what a glorious reality that we just contemplated. Uh, We can hardly take it in to think about you reigning in glory. Lord, we want to see that day. We want to see it soon. Um, As I was meditating on that truth this week, it was hard to even imagine, frankly, uh, what it will be like to live uh, in a world that isn't groaning and longing for its redemption. Lord, for the renewing of all things, uh, for the new creation that you're going to bring in as you undo uh, the only life that we've known, which is one in a fallen and corrupt world. Lord, I pray that as your people, we would uh, hasten that day, that we would Uh, be urgent in telling others to repent while there is still time. Uh, Lord, that they could be part of this kingdom uh, for nothing other than trusting in the king, trusting in his work, trusting in his sacrifice on their behalf. Lord, that we would not be attached to this life, that we would not be seeking our our satisfaction here, uh, that we would not be seeking our ultimate contentment here. And Lord, that we would not be fearful of what happens right now on this earth because we would see that you've been accomplishing this plan for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, You're going to bring it to fruition in your timetable. And uh, that's not going to be brought about uh, by the will of man, but simply by uh, your will, Father. And so we love you and we rejoice and delight in these truths as we're strengthened by them. We love you and we long for your kingdom to come. We want to see you soon. In Jesus' name, amen.